Well, if you have a Bible or if you like, you can grab the, grab the Bible in the seat in front of you. We're in Mark's Gospel, chapter 15, page 722 in our church Bibles. Now, many of you know we've been working through Mark's Gospel verse by verse since May, by the way, of 2017, and here we are in April of 2019 coming to its end. We're going to begin reading in verse 40. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Some, some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were, was, were also there. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, so as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of, of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Amen. Thanks, God. Be, thanks be to God for his word. And let's, let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word on this Good Friday, we recognize that because of our sin, Jesus was treated badly so we could call this day good. And God, we know that our lives are an open book before you that you search and that you know. You know our fears, you know our failures, and you know our hopes and all our aspirations. And Father, you equally know in this sacred moment that we need help, that I most likely need it most. But there's no shame in that, for weakness is strength in your hands. And I am weak and, and I'm in your hands. So please, by your Spirit, teach us from this text what we need to know and what we need to believe and how Christ alone can give us rest. For Jesus' sake, we ask this. Amen. Well, if you had to put in a phrase what we learned this past Sunday from our studies in Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 35, as a person considers what took place in the death of Christ, as Mark records for us, we could say that this is representative of how all people will die without Christ and what they can perpetually expect for all eternity if they choose to reject the free gift of salvation Jesus Christ offers. Not that they'll be crucified, of course, but they will know God's wrath as Jesus knew it and they will not go gentle into that good night. It will be awful. It will be shocking. However, it will be justifiable, and it will be eternal. 
because it's God's determined penalty on sin. And even as I say that, I think once again we discover that it's not our world, is it? That we cannot ultimately decide for ourselves what is right and what is wrong and what should and should not happen. But God can. And God does. And so we said the darkness that took place there was not the absence of God's presence. And it wasn't there to scare people. Rather, it was part of God's punishment on his son for our sin. The darkness was God from noon to three that Friday afternoon pouring out hell on his son. And in all of that, what Jesus never had been without, he now is aware that he is without. Verse 34 of your Bible is open. He, was, he is without the comfort of God. He is literally God forsaken as he bears in his body our sin. So on some level, at least from Mark's account, Jesus' cry in verse 37, that's not a cry of victory. It's a cry of being abandoned. And again, we noted this crucifixion uh, was all of what was representative of what hell is. Hell then is God's punishment in darkness, perpetual punishment, without comfort, without compassion, without relief, without sympathy, but with pain. That's hell. It's real. It's perpetual. And by rights, it is our due. However, if we're in Christ, only in Christ, by God's grace, we'll never know hell. Which is why the first verse of a person's life is so vital. It is so central. It's decisive. Because for 2,000 years, biblical Christianity, Orthodox Christianity, has proclaimed there is no second chance past death. There is no um, ultimate extermination of life. That in one sense, we are perpetual. And even as you think about it, this is the only reason the Christian church can label Good Friday good. And we can come to this day not as a funeral, but with a heart that is just dripping with thankfulness. Jesus Christ swallowed up every speck of sin's punishment for me, for us. So if somebody asks you, hey, why was Jesus Christ suffering so dreadfully? Was it there to make us feel bad? No, he was suffering to pay the price of our sin so that we could feel good. What is the price of sin? Again, everlasting punishment from God, if you like, a second death, which is perpetual and eternal. Now, because of that, as you read Mark and he unfolds this account, we need to know some things. In other words, since Jesus Christ is everything, in this gracious act of God sending Jesus, his son, to suffer on our account, by golly, this better all be true, right? You understand that this better be true. Consequently, the gospel writers are writing uh, truth to convert so that in believing, as John's gospel says, we might have life in Jesus, the Son of God, who was sent to save the world from sin. Life in his name, as John says. And this means as you study the story, there's no holes in the story of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection. It's solid. You investigate. It will hold up against the standard rules of logic, of law, and reason. So we understand the the emotion one would have considering this part of Christ's story. I mean, it's a dreadful thing the way Jesus died. But we need intellect as well. We need to think biblically so that we can say by faith, yes, but also by reason and by truth, yes, Jesus was crucified. He did die. He was buried. And we'll say it this Sunday, but we'll say it now. He, He is risen. 
I mean, think about it. Why else are there so many words dedicated to just the burial of Jesus? There's more words about the burial of Jesus in the Gospels than there are um, truth about Christian parenting in the New Testament. Think about that. So one reasonable question a person would ask, did Jesus really die on a cross? And I say that because, loved ones, our forefathers were, if you would, quintessential cosmopolitan thinkers. In other words, they thought way beyond themselves, and they thought um, in, in expansive forms. And they also thought it was crucial in their time and, and in their context that they made what we know as the Apostles' Creed, written in the 4th century. And it's a good document. It has the, the core essential beliefs of the Christian faith. And part of what they wrote was Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried. So it's not just that he is risen is our victory cry, but he was crucified, he died, and he was buried. And we thank God for this, for there is a religion with over one billion followers and other people we run into as we evangelize who say, you know what, Jesus did not die on a cross. Or that he didn't really die. Or even a few people who still say that he never really existed. So Sarah Irving Stonebreaker, senior professor in modern European history at Western Sydney University in Australia. Quite a title. She wrote a piece a while back that said, title, How Oxford and Peter Singer, he's an atheist by the way, drove me from atheism to Jesus. And what she says is, through a series of circumstances, she came to think through her atheistic views because of what she was hearing in lectures. And so she began to put that aside for a moment, pour through the Bible as a scholar that she was. She listened to what it said. She listened to it being preached at a church. And in time, she said yes to Christ. And listen to what she wrote. God wants anything but the unthinking faith I had once assumed characterize Christianity. See, it's not that atheists think through Christianity. They just don't think it through enough. They just hit the edges. They don't go through the thing. She, she goes on. Moreover, God wants broken people, not self-righteous ones. That's good, Sarah. You, you really did read your Bible, Sarah. So sometimes we go to the Bible to look up stuff to just, you know, to satisfy a need. That's understandable. But it's best to go to the Bible that God might teach us what we need to know. That's indispensable. And then this makes the centurion. You see there in verse 39, we spoke a little about him last time. But in verse 39, he's a very important person for at least two reasons. Number one, when Mark began the gospel, right in the beginning, chapter 1, verse 1, he wrote the declarative statement, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. So it's only the beginning here, the events which led to the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. But his gospel is all about Jesus as the Son of God. And so as Mark moves along, he develops this statement by supporting this reality with accounts about Jesus' life, the miracles, the healings, the feedings, doing things that no mere man can do. He explains it from the scriptures and even from Jesus himself. And now here we are in chapter 15, verse 39, near the end of the book. 
And for the very first time, at least in Mark's gospel, the very first time a mere human declares what Mark said right from the beginning. Truly, this man, verse 39, if you see it there, was the Son of God. Now, on one level, that's great writing. But beyond that, it converges with Mark's opening statement with finally an eyewitness. And it wasn't until when, now think through this. It wasn't until the death of Christ, when he's dead on a cross, a moment of, if you would, perceived weakness that the Roman centurion says, surely this man was the Son of God. Now, God the Father said it in chapter 1, verse 11, at Jesus' baptism. He said it again at the transfiguration in chapter 9, this is my beloved Son. Even the dark world of demons, they said it a lot. Chapter 1, verse 24. Chapter 3, verse 11. Chapter 5, verse 7. Each time they called Jesus openly the Son of God. Heaven says it. Hell says it. And finally, a mere man says it. And what a man. He wasn't a Jew. He was a Gentile. He wasn't a disciple, but he was a Roman soldier. He wasn't an upright citizen, but he was the head of the execution squad whose sworn duty was to observe all that had taken place at crucifixions, which means this guy was probably there at the beatdown Jesus took after he left Pilate's eyes. In other words, this guy has seen and heard many times how men die. Jesus does not die like other men. I hope you're tracking with me. God chooses this man, not others, not high holies. He chooses this man, to say that Jesus is not like other men. He was more than a man. He was God's son. Exactly. But, listen carefully. When the centurion said he was the son of God, that's nice. But it's not enough. Jesus is the son of God. And so the rest of the story in the resurrection, Mark will affirm that the was is actually is. That Jesus is the son of God. So I need to ask you right now, do you believe tonight that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that He's the only way that you can know forgiveness? Do you believe that He is the way, the truth, and the life? It's the most important question anyone will ever ask you, and it's the most important question you will ask anyone else. That's reason number one. Reason number two, when you see there in verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea, when he went to Pilate to ask for the body of Christ, Pilate, having a lot of experience with crucifixion, was taken back by the fact that Jesus was already dead. Oftentimes, a crucifixion and death could take a couple of days. So he says, verse 44, he calls for this same centurion, ask him if Jesus really had died. And of course, as we said, the centurion being a witness to so many deaths of a crucifixion, he's got a pretty good sense of when a person is dead. But not only this, if you read John's gospel, and I hope you're reading gospels through this Holy Week, but anyway, John's gospel tells us the soldiers under this centurion's charge were so surprised that Jesus was already dead that they didn't follow protocol, which was to break the the crucified body's leg so these guys' uh, death would be hastened. They didn't do that to Jesus because Jesus was already dead. Yet, just to be sure, a soldier pierces the side of Jesus, just like a side of beef, with what the Catholic faith would centuries later call the holy lance. Why do I say that? Good Friday, holy lance. You're making the connection, the bad, 
spirit through the side, the death of Jesus Christ, the bad in time, would show itself not only necessary, but it would show itself good. Bad authenticates the story. So John writes in gospel, uh, his gospel, chapter 19, this is what the said about the centurion, as the one who saw these things, he has testified to this, and his testimony is true. All of what's to say that it is a core Christian belief that Jesus Christ was truly dead. We need a dead Savior in part. That's a centurion. His presence was demanded by duty. Now, what about these ladies you read of beginning in verse 40? You see them there looking on from a distance, bewildered, but they're still there. They're still present. And any clear, um, honest reading of the New Testament, we find that, and this is important, that Christianity wasn't a, um, wasn't a men-only movement. That, that Christianity wasn't some, like uh, some kind of a gigantic promise keeper's event. And Christianity wasn't about only, you know, the women have to work in the kitchen and they have to work with the kids. Because if truth be told, you're thinking through the story. In this exact moment, beginning in verse 40, Christianity, it could be said, right then, is only a woman's movement. All the men are gone. Right now, right now, it's a woman's movement. Again, verse 40, some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene. She was a lady who had seven demons casted from her by Jesus. Mary, the mother of James the younger, and so on. And there you see, in Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem, were also there. So clearly, women had a strategic role in the ministry of Jesus from the beginning, and they stayed until the end, if you would. And by the way, Luke's gospel tells us that um, many women financially supported Jesus and his ministry team. In other words, women kept the thing going. Women were his support group, which puts the pot, the idea that Jesus and his disciples, you know, they were self-contained and they were self-sufficient band of 12 men in need of nobody and in need of nothing and certainly not in need of any kind of female engagement. That they needed to separate. They did not separate. That's fiction. Clearly, they were together. And just think about this for a moment. This makes me laugh. Think about Jesus with all these women coming into town as a single man. I mean, think about that. Every time he went into a city, whole lots of girls. All he needed was some background music. I mean, this is just crazy. That was him. That was Jesus. And in verse 41, it wasn't just a few. Many, many other women who came up to him with him to Jerusalem, women who, who, who let Jesus Christ just break into their lives and, and pull them from their routines. And therefore, it is these women who remain until the end. And they will be given the privilege to be the witness to the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, and particularly the resurrection, as most of you know, they were the first to see the risen Christ which if you think about it is really striking because in that time and in that place, women had absolutely no legal status. Their testimony was useless. 
They couldn't testify in a court of law, which makes me think that if this account was like an invention of the disciples and you wanted to make it really, really believable that Jesus really died and that he was really buried and that he really rose again, the one thing you would do is to make your witnesses not women, but you would make them men. You would at least throw some men in there to kind of like beef up the story. But you read the text and you say... Where's the beef? Right? Where are they? There's practically no man, no men there, and one of the two is what? He's a Gentile. He's a Roman soldier. But the women are there. They're there from a distance, close enough, verse 47, that Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph was there where Jesus was laid. They knew where he was laid. Incidentally, and in passing, Mary Magdalene We know, as I said, in times past, had seven demons casted out of her by Jesus, and she was more than likely previously a prostitute. Jesus changed her. And I was thinking about what Jesus said in her account, that she, she loved much because she was forgiven so much. That's what Jesus said. And so I was thinking, she's actually a really, really good theologian because she understands that the devastation of sin... And what it can do, and by the way, not, not just sexual sin, but all sin like greed and gossip and insults and lies and arrogance and so on. All sin is devastating because while she stopped being a prostitute, she didn't stop being a sinner. So she knew she'd been forgiven of so much. And so her response is she's loving Jesus so much and therefore she's persevering with Jesus. She's staying with Jesus until the very end. That's love. That's what a healthy or sound doctrine will do to you. Me, great sinner, Christ, great Savior. I love him for that. And it becomes much more than just emotion. It becomes brave action. That's what she had. So she's going to be rewarded. She will be, along with another Mary, be able to see Jesus is alive. Finally, the, the fact that some of the names are, are given to these ladies simply say, one, that you can safely assume they were well-known in the early church. In other words, they're verifiable names. If these names are just made up, go, you could go check the record to see if what Mark was writing was true. And two, these were real people giving real reports of something that really happened. And one of the benefits of that is some 2,000 years later, real people like you and me, We can rejoice in the resurrection and rejoice in the free forgiveness of our sins. That we can rejoice in our eternal right standing with God. That he's got our back. And we can live in the joy of that truth. And we can actually function in that truth because Jesus is alive. And because he's alive, we don't have to be afraid all the time. And we don't have to be heartless either. And we can actually throw our lives blood onto the the altar of sacrifice and know that our service for Jesus is only gain, that it's never ever loss, that we're marked with Ephesians 1, we're marked with Christ's seal, the promised Holy Spirit, a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. So we know that death will be defeated. And we know that life without ending is coming. And there's not going to be no more blah. You know what I mean? I mean, every time I hear the word cancer, I want to kick something. That is going to end. And there's coming a day 
because of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, that we're going to have sweet fellowship with him. That ought to mean something to a Christian. We're going to have fellowship with his people, and we're going to have this new, glorified, indestructible, incorruptible body. So thank you, Jesus, and, and frankly, thank you, ladies. Thank you, ladies, for your devotion to Jesus, that in your courage, you bear witness to Jesus, that you can speak to the mind of a skeptic, and you can strengthen the heart of a believer. You give, if you would, teeth to this account. And you, chapter 15, verse 7, you saw where they laid him. You could account for that. Chapter 16, verse 1, we didn't read it, but you're there to anoint a lifeless body so that you could be first to hear the good news. Chapter 16, verse 6, he has risen. And you will in time declare what? You'll declare that truth to the men who weren't there. And you know, when you read the book of Acts and the unfolding story of the church, we find these women are present in the upper room in prayer in prospect of what? Receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, which they will. You read on in Acts and you find that women are central in the work of the gospel and the work of the church. You read the epistles, especially Paul's writing, you find there's this whole succession of women that are very, very uh, keen and at the heart of many of the New Testament church's work. And I say that because in the time we live, it's important to affirm that while women like men, they can't do everything, they can do many things. And the women here did some marvelous things. And their simple perseverance based on their love for Jesus. So I say to you, love is so powerful. We found found out the disciples lusted for power and prestige. And what did it give them? When the high moment came, they just tank on Jesus. That's what power and prestige will do. But love, love will keep you in the thick of it. No matter how hard it gets. We need to stop. Verse 42 So logistically, the body of Christ, if a proper Jewish burial is going to take place, they would have to take that body down immediately before sundown Friday. And so Joseph of Arimathea, verse 43, you see it, a prominent member of the council and a witness to the truth that Jesus had died, he begins to risk a lot as he breaks away from the decisions of those who so uh, viciously sought to see Jesus die. So if you would, he begins to loosen himself from, from those religious leaders. And determine that since Jesus is dead, he will honor him in whatever way is left open to him. And so he will join the ladies to bear witness. If you would speak from the past. And this is what he will say. Look at your Bible. I quickly and as carefully as I could, I I took down the dead body of Jesus from the cross. And I wrapped his body, verse 46, in linen. And then I placed it in a tomb cut out of a rock. I rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. I did this. And as you can imagine, people could ask, and he could say. Now, when I thought about this, and with this we're going to close, I thought to myself, Joseph, as a religious man, was very, very good at following rules. Jewish burial rites, what to do and not to do. You're up against the clock. Let's get this right. Let's do this right. But up until then, 
like the twelve, while he was very good at following rules, he was terrible at following Jesus. Almost as if to say, you know, give me the rules. Give me the do's and don'ts. I can justify myself and I can honor myself in that. So I'll read my Bible, I'll pray, show up, serve, attend, give. I can do that. But when you set Jesus before me as he actually is, and I hear that great call to carry my cross and follow him, to lose my life and follow him, this is where I fail. And this is why I need the gospel to be true. This is why I need a Christ who died, who was buried, and who was risen. Which makes me want to just end the sermon by saying this. There is no hope at all for anyone without Jesus. Tell it to yourself. And if you can, tell it to someone else. Let's pray. We're going to sing a song and worship, and then in a moment we'll gather at the table to receive from Christ. God and Father, we thank you that our only hope in life and in death is this, that we're not our own, but we belong body and soul both in life and death to you and our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, that Christ took all the pains of death, swallowed up your wrath, paid the full penalty of our sin. And now all we know is righteousness, His. Love, which is His. Spirit, which is ours. And to be called your child forever and ever, world without end. Thank you for your goodness and for your mercy, for Jesus' sake. Amen.